I do have, I, I've got something different to do today, no series. In fact, there's not even a graphic because I got here and I was making changes and I never got to it. So the graphic is going to be a black screen today. So just imagine that by that I intended to be minimalistic, full for you to put your ideas of what you would want to have there. Um, there was uh, a couple years ago, this couple in France found a painting in their attic. And uh, here's, here's the painting here. Lovely. Uh, and I don't get why, why would you leave that in your attic? Bring it downstairs. Put it, bring it out for Christmas. Carve the turkey in front of it. Um, you can see how huge it is. Look at the hands next to it. Those are people with little gloves on. They found that in the attic. They wanted to find out what is it. It looks a lot like Cara, uh, uh, I wrote it on here, Cara Vagio, I think I'm going to say it, Caravaggio's uh, Judith of Holofernes, but it, it's different looking. It's, it's a very similar palette, similar color, so they figured it's some kind of, takes heavy inspiration from someone copying that uh, ancient medieval painting, and so they, they, brought, or they, or they brought this up, and they were trying to figure out what it is, and they found that his signature, Caravaggio, was on the corner, and they, were, they had no idea how that could be. It's clearly not the same Judith of Holofernes. It's it looks different. The, the creepy old lady is standing in a different spot. Uh, and so they, they looked into it, and they took three years to verify what it is, and they found out what it is. It was his first draft. It's from 1607. It is, a, it is authentically from that famous artist. And he made it and looked at it and said, not masterpiece enough, and then redid it again. So they brought it out of the attic, and they uh, put it up to auction, and it sold... At auction, this couple sold it for $170 million. Imagine finding a $170 million thing in your attic. The first thing I would do is I'd buy another house that wasn't a creepy, bloody painting in the attic for four centuries that no one knew about. Um, it's a remarkable thing because for, for centuries and centuries, it's discarded as, as junk, as just one of those old things Europeans keep that we Americans find amazing. There are houses people are living in that are older than our country. Uh, and they just don't care. It's just in the attic, and it was regarded as a wasted thing until the value of it's found, value that is given to it intrinsically by the artist that created it. There is this amazing value imparted to that piece that changes things dramatically, and I wanted us to think about that before uh, we get started today, because I want to talk about God's image on people. The intrinsic value of God's image that endows every person with majesty and dignity. It is the fact that humanity is created to be like God, modeled after God, that murder is banned in Scripture. They cannot, you cannot kill another person because that is made in the image of God. In, in our law, we can't do it because we, it's violent and it's wrong and a person shouldn't have the right to be judge, jury, and executioner. But in, the, in a biblical sense, you cannot do that because that right there is a creation created to be like God. And yet for so much of humanity, while this intrinsic value is given, it's hidden, it's lost, it's, it's, it's like the painting left in an attic for centuries. And so a question this morning I'm wondering is if we live in a world of, of these lost masterpieces, every human being created as something deep and powerful and meaningful, everyone from the most lost 
mentally ill person that we could find in a downtown area living in a tent to a person who we see on TV with much wealth and honor, both of them created in the image of God, made for something deeper and more meaningful than the lives they live. If we live in this world, what does effective, practical evangelism and discipleship growing in the spirit really look like? Right now, in Sandy, Oregon, in the 20s, which is a funny thing to say. We're in the 20s again. I'm down to saying 2020. I feel like we're in the second decade. There's kind of 30 if you count the first. I'm just going 20s. That's what's going to be. We're in the 20s now, everybody. And it's not roaring. <laughs> I do believe the church is called to find these image bearers and to help them find the honor that's due to them, to treat them with that honor. And we honor others because of their intrinsic value. I feel like when we see this, it makes sense of some of the most perplexing things Jesus says, that you are to love your enemies and pray for them also. That's a very odd thing to teach, and it's, it's uncommon to any of the spiritual teachers in the world. But it is something you would say if even if your enemy is someone created in the image of the only one with honor due to his name, created in the image of God, that we would see others and treat them in a unique way from the rest of the world, that all people are endowed with honor from God. And as what I see in Scripture is, this, is God attempts to wrap people in this honor again and bring it back to them. It's always preparing them for the day of the Lord, for a time that they can be restored completely. And so we're going to do something fun today. At least I think it's fun. Um, we're going to do an object study of God clothing people in Scripture. I want to look at three stories. I want to look at the first time he did it, Adam and Eve just out of the garden. I want to look at the ultimate picture in the Old Testament where God says that it's like he pulled Israel out of the mud and cleans them and dresses them and and puts honor on them, a picture from Ezekiel. And then we're going to look at the final picture of this, the, the saints in their white robes in the city of New Jerusalem. So we're going to study these three images very briefly. Learning from it is God clothes and wraps people in honor. If there were a graphic today, it would say right now, clothed in honor. But it's there in your favorite font in your imagination. I want to read the first mention of this. This is just after the fall. We're going to be in Genesis 3. And we're reading the first time God clothed people in garments. The Lord made garments of skin for Adam and Eve, and he clothed them. And the Lord said, the man has become... Like one of us, knowing good and evil, he must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which uh, he had been taken. And after he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden a cherubim and a flaming, uh, and a flaming flashing, excuse me, a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. we see here God beginning to restore some dignity that's been lost. And I think it's important to understand something real quick. Uh, It can, as we read, especially the Genesis account, we get this idea, naked, good, clothing, bad. And that's not the point. When Adam and Eve feel shame, it's the shame that's the problem. The clothes are not. We get this sense, especially as we look at the, the theme of God clothing people in Scripture, the robes that are on his saints in heaven, the clothing is an honorable and good thing. And in this lost moment, 
when this high creation falls and becomes something of a marred image, God's first action is to shed blood, to wrap them up in clothing, and to extend dignity back to them again. Because there's still consequences. Blood is still shed, but honor remains. And clothing humanity is this first step in redemption. Because the image is gone to a degree, but it's still there. And God is still speaking to it. You are not like the animals of the field. You're not like the birds of the air. You are a higher creation. You will go wrapped in clothing. As this constant reminder of who they're meant to be. And this bloodshed in their covering is critical because it points to an ultimate covering that will come one day. The covering of Christ's blood is the thing that could do what this covering could never do. Not just to be a reminder, don't forget that somewhere deep inside of the broken core of who you are is the image of God, but it has the power to restore the image completely, to conform us to the image of the Son and to change things and to bring us back to paradise, which is why I read that for so long about paradise lost. This deep pursuit for paradise, again, for for complete harmony, it's something that's deep inside of all of us. We want to find the way back. And we find that it isn't something we lost like a map. It's something that is guarded, and God has set a limit. You cannot go beyond this. His authority has established one to say, you cannot return to paradise unless someone comes with greater authority to open that up again. You see, I would say that much of human history could be personified with a failed attempt to get back to paradise. Hitler convinced people across Germany that the way back to paradise was a fascist movement. We can't forget that the whole point of fascism was not to go to war. That's all they achieved. The idea was that they would go to war. They would purge all the worst parts of of humanity. They would set up this new system and that the world would enter into a new uh, paradise state where, the, where things would be perfect and things would be fixed, and it was that promise that made people do things incredibly inhumane. We have a long history of being promised paradise and being willing to sacrifice a deep level of our humanity to get there. Lenin promised Russians that communism was a way to come to paradise, that everything would get fixed, everything from the people that oppressed them, and the system they set up was so easily corrupted that it was far worse than what they started out with. It comes to a point that after World War II, they called it the de-Stalinization. Stalin had taken it and made it such an amazingly corrupt country that even communist Russia said, we need to pump the brakes. That's pretty bad. We try to fashion our own way to glory, finding a way to go forward, not realizing that there is someone who's made that sacrifice, because I really think that lays at the heart of it. So much of us thinks that, that... Paradise is so far from me, and I've never experienced it so clearly. I feel in here, huge sacrifice needs to be made to get there. And maybe that is warfare. Maybe that is doing something or looking the other way and not paying attention, and we're just going to plow forward and do this thing. We ask ourselves, how can people be so evil? And it's because they want to get back, and they know sacrifice will need to get me there. Deep inside of us, we find ourselves hoping for a gospel in which an incredible sacrifice will take place, when blood will be shed to recover us and honor again and open the way back that we could be worthy of going back to something that we were cast out of, something we still feel a call to in our heart. And it spreads everywhere. Even in the U.S., our hope in democracy has not brought about the paradise we thought it would 200 years ago. 
we've found that you can corrupt democracy as easy as anything else. In fact, the hope of humanity isn't in a democracy. It's in a kingdom where a king reigns. Democracy is sort of the best limping system we've found so far. But it is not bringing us the hope in the paradise we thought. This hasn't turned out to be the perfect civilization we thought. And there's still a kingdom we're hoping for. Our hearts burn within us to be honorable again, to be put together again and worthy of paradise that we could go back. And there's an interesting question here. Why why does God have to cover them at all? Why not just tell them, look, you're naked, deal with it. You were naked before and you didn't care. When my kids complain about new things, that's usually my tact. You didn't care a minute ago. Why do you care now? Get used to it. You're whining now. I bet you in five minutes, Adam, you're going to quit whining about being naked. Now get out there and get to work. (laughs) God is preparing them for a redemptive work and holding them back from depravity. It's like a depravity dam holding back a river that you are, being, you are descending so far down. I mean, that's, that's Paul's description of the fall of humanity is they fall down, down, down. They start worshiping birds, animals, snakes on the ground. They hit the earth. They continue to descend. But there's this thing to remind them, you are not an animal. You weren't made for this. There is something divine. There's something special about you. And the clothing is that reminder. It's a stop point in total derangement and a reminder that they are a special creation. Living way here at our church, we strive in many ways to find people and to treat them like sons and daughters of God. And I would hope that that calling deepens even more. But I see it every day. And we do this because grace and dignity prepares them for hearing the gospel. I see it when we, when we help people who can't afford to do their laundry and we, we clean it for them every month because they may not realize it, but those people that can't afford laundry in Sandy that we've washed their laundry at Laundry Love, those people are made in the image of the God that we were worshiping this morning. We invest money and time into our youth group because these kids, most of our youth group doesn't come on Sunday mornings. Their families don't go here. That's been... Uh, long a thing that we've had. And instead of feeling bad about it, we've realized that it's not a terrible thing because we have all of these kids who have no place to go and no church that, to be part of, and they can come be with us. We've also had a great, cha- uh, a great opportunity of bringing all of the youth that do go to our church in. So instead of having a youth group where, you know, it's just, it was just me and Natalia hanging out for years, we had, we had other people come show up. But we do that because those kids are made in the image of God. Rowdy teenagers with, that, that can make as many mistakes as they do good decisions are made in the image of God. I see we do this every week when Donette puts on preschool for kids in our community. We charge so little for our preschool because we want to take care of people in our community. Uh, kindergarten's free, preschool is not, and we take care of these people. And she cares for these families because even those little kids are made in the image of God. This would be the thing that motivates us to say hello to newcomers. I think there's something special in our church. I've heard it from people that have visited here that we're not as numbers-driven as some other places. People don't feel like we speak to them because we simply want to make Living Way really, really big, but we speak to them because we see something special about them and we care about them. And being uh, now in the office of a senior pastor for a while, I really feel I've 
discerned a special anointing with us in that way, to see God's image in people. And I hope that I can encourage us all the more to deepen our walk in it. One of the greatest images of God clothing anyone in Scripture is in Ezekiel. It's one of the, there's so many key visions in Ezekiel. He's a very visual guy. Some of them are more perplexing than others. This one is this image of God comes and he sees a baby abandoned in mud. And so he speaks, I always get emotional. He speaks life into this baby and the baby breathes and becomes alive and then continues to grow. And as he comes back and sees the child again as it grows, this is the image he speaks. And it's his, what he says he did for Israel is he saw them as this young nation. How does God get a nation prepared for the Messiah and to spread the gospel? He uses these terms. It's a prophetic visual. Later I passed by and I looked at you and I saw that you were old enough for love. So I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your naked body. I gave you a solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you, declares the sovereign Lord. And you became mine. I bathed you with water and washed you uh, and washed the blood from you and put ointments on you. I clothed you with, embroidered, with an embroidered dress and put sandals and uh, fine leather on you. I dressed you with fine linen and covered you with costly garments. I adorned you with jewelry. I put bracelets on your arms and a necklace around your neck. And I put a ring on your nose, earrings on your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. So you were adorned with gold and silver, and your clothes were fine linen and costly fabric and embroidered cloth. Your food was honey, olive oil, and the finest flour. You became very beautiful and rose to be a queen. And your fame, your fame spread among the nations on account of your beauty because the splendor that I had given you and your beauty uh, and made your beauty perfect, declares the sovereign Lord. It's a picture of the, uh, the ultimate makeover. Pulling someone out of the mud, cleaning them, combing mud out of the hair, getting them prepared, cleaned, and made into something high and great. Of all the images of the way that, of what, it, what it's like to be found by God and cleaned up and put on a path. This is one of those ones that just sticks with you. It always has. It's one of the key images of God dressing and cleaning people. The most poignant mention. A poetic telling of God choosing Israel. And what's interesting is this. Though it is the image of humanity being pulled up from the muck, it all sets up to where the image goes that Israel has thrown off its garments, thrown away the things that adorned it, and they've gone out in naked humiliation. A once high and noble race of humanity has was, that was forsaken by God's raised up, cleaned up, and then they forsake him again. Not everyone stays in honor. But the fact is, is just as for Israel, this is the end for no one. If you feel like God cleaned you up and brought you up and put you on solid ground and everything was fine, and, and the first time we get saved, we typically tell ourselves, this is it, I'm on the straight and narrow, or the first time we get confronted on something, but it's all the more disheartening when you fail a second and third time. If you feel like God brought you up and put you there and you've forsaken it, you need to know something. That was not a one-off thing. God was honoring something inside of you, intrinsic value that is still there, that you were created as a creation to be made in the image of God. You have value because of who you look like. You have value on who you reflect, who you are like. 
And it's time to stand up again, to rise up again and let him make you clean, to be the creation you were created to be. I heard a testimony when I was at camp years ago when I was a high schooler. This girl was talking about how she was raised in a Christian family, and she always went to church, and she did these things, and she was the kid that got stickers on Sunday mornings because she remembered her Bible verses. But when her parents got divorced, everything fell apart, and she began to cope with getting away from the family, diverging more, doing things that she wouldn't have wanted to do before. She gets into partying, drinking, drugs, and she was strung out at a party in high school, and she had this moment where she just started to say, she, she, was, she started to say very loudly, in fact, to everybody in the room, I used to not be like this, she started shouting. I used to not do things like this. I was a good girl. I was a church girl. I used to know better than this. I used, to, I used to be very different than this. And it was this moment where she was able to stand up in her own self, remembering her value and walk out of that. And uh, I still know her to this day, and her life is extremely different. Because you see, if we do not see the intrinsic value within ourselves, if we feel we are trash, we will act like trash. We will act like we aren't worth anything. If there's no value in our lives, we tend to fall apart. And God's redemptive work begins as he declares to us, you are not worthless. In that moment, she felt, I am not worthless. I have value. And don't think you've squandered the gift when God cleans you up and puts you up on solid ground again. Because it was about something that was in you that's still there. Let him clothe you again and bring you back to dignity, to awaken the saint that's within you. And saints is where we're going to end it. Flip to the book of Revelation. In verse twenty or in chapter twenty-two, they begin to look at the uh, the people in their in their shining, glowing robes. These are those who it says they wash their robes in the blood of the Lamb. These are saints that God has clothed at the end of all things. The final clothing, what it all came down to. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through into the gates. It's an amazing mention because it takes us back to the first, that now you're clothed. And you again have access to the thing that was taken away from you the first time you were clothed. Humanity had taken away from them the tree of life the first time they were clothed, and now the final time. Those who are in the robes can return, can go back through the gate into the tree of life. And the saints are covered with these robes, cleaned in the blood of the Lamb. They're free to go back to paradise. The eternal desire in the heart, this need to make a to make a name for ourselves, to be remembered beyond we were gone or fulfilled on this day. The desire for endless joy is fulfilled on that day. The desire to not miss out on what life is meant to live for is fulfilled on that day. And that thing inside of us that says, I want dignity, 
I want to live unending, and I want to have something that is meant for me and not miss out on it is fulfilled on that day. On that day, people that looked very different in this world are transfigured in such a way that if you were to see them right now, you may be compelled to drop on your knees and worship them when the image is made complete. And when they reflect it entirely, the church lives for that day. When we see people and we see the image of God in them, we should treat them in light of that day. That things will be very different when the job is complete. You see, we are people who have, who have become art aficionados. We know the work of our Father. We know what it looks like. We're one of them. And though the rest of the world can be discarded in the attic and left alone, we are blessed with the ability to see it and to understand that is a valuable person. That is an honorable person, no matter what they look like, no matter how everybody talks about them, no matter how irritating they can be to us, no matter how uh, broken they are. I have eyes that nobody else has. I have eyes that were given to me by my Father, and I can see something in them. They were made in the image of God with intrinsic value. To me, this kind of vision and way of seeing the world around us and people around us is the beginning of an extremely practical way of evangelizing. To treat people like they are something. And, and I'll tell you what we're doing is we're copying God. If you want a recipe for success, copy God. As he prepares people for redemption, he clothes them in honor. He lifts them up out of the muck that they would not be so confused, gets them clean so that they can stand on their own two feet and walk into his redemption, into his sacrifice that actually gets us back to paradise. I do believe that this is a special anointing on our church. I see us do it all the time. We honor AA as special guests. We honor our kids when they come in here on Wednesday nights. No matter how esteemed or popular they are at school, they are the life of the party at youth group. We know their names. We do this on Tuesday when we wash people's laundry and treat them like we're really glad that they're there. I would pray that our anointing to see people with spiritual non-carnal eyes would grow all the more. That it would become the lead thing that we do. Because in the end, what this church does, which is us, not this building or the organization, us that are in this room, what we do is we prepare this community, Sandy, for the day of the Lord. We prepare it so that on that day, when the robes are on and everybody is present, that everyone due honor was brought in, everyone that we could honor, everyone we could prepare for the gospel, everyone we could teach, preach to, find, provide for, that we prepared them for that day, that we prepared this city for that day. So let us prepare with dazzling acts of honor. Let us prepare this community the genuine love and care based on their God-endowed value. And let us prepare them by bringing them to the truth when the time is right. It's more than just preaching. I have to excuse the clumsiness of this analogy, but I do think evangelism is a bit like hunting. Yeah, pulling the trigger is a really clear part of hunting, but there's a lot that goes on before that, of tracking your quarry, finding them, preparing yourself, learning the way things are, and getting close and being patient for the right moment. I once heard someone say the mark of a great hunter is restraint, waiting for it to get closer and closer and to not just go, I got to do it now. And if you're wanting to find out how do we bring people in, 
We honor the living daylights out of them based on the image they're created in. And when the time is right, the story you'll tell them is yours. Why is it that you trust in someone that you've never laid eyes on? Why is it the teachings that that are written in this book that they feel they've seen failed so many people, why do you have so much confidence in them? And your testimony is what you end with. If you wanna know how to reach a coworker for the gospel, remind yourself on the entire drive-in that you work with a creation made in the image of God. That is who they are. And when you park your car and you go inside, treat them like it. Because such honor prepares them for the day of the Lord, prepares them for the day when the gospel is spoken to them. I wanna pray for us that we could grow in this ability and not just to see others, but to see yourself. That if you are in a spot where you are not living as the creation that you truly are on the inside, that your vision of yourself would change. Lord, today I ask for those of us that uh, we don't feel like we are valuable. We don't feel like we're sacred. We don't feel like we have some sort of deep intrinsic honor that's hidden away. Instead, we feel like we have deep intrinsic shame that is hidden away. Lord, I pray that you would reveal to us just how sacred we are. You don't talk to people like you talk to animals. To which animal did you say you count their thoughts? You gave us the ability to think. You watch over us. And if you care for the little details of sparrows and flowers, you say, how much more you? Because we are greater. Lord, I pray for those that feel lowly and downcast today. Lord, would you give them confidence that what makes them great is you. They are a good creation. Lord, allow us to stand on our two feet again to get back onto dry ground again, to live as the creation we were made to be. God, I pray that uh, such a truth as this, as we've looked at your word, how you have honored and as you spread your gospel message, how you clothe people in honor, how you see the image, Lord, I pray that that would clear fog and shadows as we don't know what to do with daily life. How do we evangelize in daily life? Lord, let that fog begin to lift. Let us honor people until the time is right. Give us confidence to share testimonies when the time is right. God, I pray that you'd be showing us coworkers, the difficult ones, the ones that no one else honors, Lord. Oh, Lord, they're ripe to be treated like the creation that you see them as, that you made them to be. Lord, give us an anointing to be good with difficult people to see amazing value in those that everyone around us says is worthless. Help us to raise people up in honor that they could say yes to you and follow you, that we would live for that day when all dreams are fulfilled and may Sandy be ready for that day, Lord. We thank you, God. Amen.